From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. On July 12th, protests erupted in Iran's southwestern province of Khuzestan over severe water shortages. The protests swiftly spread to 22 other cities across the oil-rich province. In solidarity with protesters in Khuzestan, people in several other cities in Iran have also taken to the streets, chanting anti-government slogans. The regime has responded to the protest with characteristic violent crackdown, coupled with internet disruptions and blackouts. On July 23rd, Amnesty International reported that Iran's security forces have been firing live ammunition and birdshot to crush mostly peaceful protests. The human rights organization also says that video footage coupled with consistent accounts from the ground indicate security forces used deadly automatic weapons, shotguns, with inherently indiscriminate ammunition and tear gas to disperse protesters. The organization also reported that so far, at least eight protesters and bystanders, including a teenage boy, in seven different cities have been killed. Scores of people, including children, have been injured, including by birdshot, and several are hospitalized in critical condition due to gunshot wounds. Security and intelligence forces have also swept up dozens of protesters and activists, including many from the Arab minority, in mass arrests. Amnesty International's statement adds, Iran's authorities have a harrowing track record of using unlawful lethal forces. The events unfolding in Khuzestan have chilling echoes of November 2019, when security forces unlawfully killed hundreds of protesters and bystanders but were never held to account. The local population of Khuzestan have many grievances that go beyond adequate access to clean water. A province with vast resources suffer from devastating environmental degradation, widespread poverty, ethnic discrimination, chronic unemployment, with one of the highest unemployment rates in the country, as well as the second highest number of people living in slums and informal housing units. These adverse conditions have forced many to migrate, making Khuzestan have the highest number of immigrations among all provinces in Iran. To discuss the underlying causes of these latest protests in Khuzestan, Shahram Aghamir spoke with Kaveh Ehsani, Assistant Professor of International Studies and Critical Ethnic Studies at DePaul University. Professor Ehsani's current research is about the historical and contemporary impact of oil on society and politics, the historical sociology of warfare, the politics of property, land use, and water, the urban process and a spatial change in the Middle East cities, and the political economy and geopolitics of post-revolution Iran. Khuzestan is a major province in the southwest of Iran at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. It's a border region. It borders the, the Gulf and its boundary is the Shat al-Arab, which is the boundary river between 
Iran and Iraq. It's multi-ethnic. Its population consists of largely ethnic Arabs, as well as ethnic Lurs, various pastoral communities and agrarian communities that belong to the Lur ethnic group. It has these old cities that have their own indigenous populations like Shushtar, Desful, and all that. And it has major immigrant cities like the oil refinery city of Abadan, the port city of Khurramshahr, or the capital of Ahvaz that consists of hundreds of thousands of people who have migrated there over the course of the 20th century and from all over Iran. So in terms of demography, in terms of location, in terms of its ethnic and social composition, it's a very diverse province. It bore the brunt of the Iran-Iraq war because most of the war was fought in that province. At least a million people were displaced internally within the province itself. Up to three million people became refugees during the Iran-Iraq war, and many of them have not returned. It is the epicenter of oil production in Iran, and since it's an extension of the Mesopotamian plains and holds most of Iran's, the largest sources of Iran's surface water, especially around the river Karun and Dez and Karche. It also has been the epicenter of major development, agrarian and agribusiness development projects since over the course of the 20th century. So geographically, it's very diverse. Geopolitically, it's very sensitive. Socially, it's very, it's very complex. And it has played a key role in shaping Iran's modern history since the 20th century. And in some ways, it's probably the most strategic province in the entire country. Kaveh, what sparked the current wave of protests? What are these protesters' demands and what slogans are they chanting? Also, what is the latest in this protest? Khuzestan is the center of oil production. So oil workers have started in June to go on strike and demand better pay and accountable contracts. And this is a separate question that if you want, I can get into, you know, so there's a lot of labor discontent in the oil sector, which is very strategic. There has been a long history over the recent years of also labor protests in agribusinesses, especially sugarcane production in the province. There are many other major industries there like steel production, steel mills and, and others that also have been the site of labor discontent over the past few years. The current wave right after the labor strikes of late June had to do with significant water shortage, a potable water shortage, and also shortage of electricity supplies, which is quite daunting. And it's been coupled with unprecedented rises in temperature, temperatures in the 120, 130 degree range, making life extremely difficult. It has led to this explosion of major discontent and objections across the board in the province, but also in other provinces and in other cities in support and in solidarity with the people of Khuzestan. The important point to make and emphasize is that Khuzestan has been the site of many, many protests over water, over labor, against government mismanagement and corruption and so on and so forth over the past at least 20 years, since the 1990s that I'm aware of, and even before that. But in the 1980s, the Iran-Iraq war had put a stop to a lot of autonomous social protests. But since the 1990s, these flare-ups of various kinds of discontent have been very much part of the fabric, the political fabric of the province. So in 1999, I remember the city of Abadan 
which was the site of the largest oil refinery in the world until it was destroyed in 1980 by the Iraqi invasion. The entire city, which is incidentally, it's an, it's an island city sitting in the middle of two major rivers, Shat al-Arab, which is a confluence of Tigris and Euphrates and Karun. So it's around sweet water, but the city just had no water for at least a week. And there was an explosion of popular discontent. There was a crackdown. Many people were shot and imprisoned, but that was a start. And then the following year, again, protests over inadequate water, salty water was not good for drinking nor for agriculture. These flare-ups began to really shape the politics of the province, at least since the late 1990s and especially throughout the 21st century. Kaveh, it's probably too early and the level of censorship and repression in Iran makes it even more difficult to determine the makeup of the protests in terms of class, gender, ethnicity and age. That said, what do we know so far about who is protesting? People don't have water. <laughs> There's no electricity. So people who have come to depend in the absence of other amenities, at least on being able to run their air conditioners in deadly heat, deadly summer heat, are suffering. And I imagine, and this is my strong sense by watching video clips and also, uh, you know, voices, various voices by protesters, but also by people commenting on it, or my own contacts in Khuzestan, that it's quite widespread. It's not just the ethnic Arabs who are a persecuted minority, you know, in the province and in the country, but everybody's suffering and are in the same situation. So the protests are quite widespread, and that is entirely understandable. And as usual, it's the youth mostly out there. Any indication of what gender makeup of this protest or, I mean, in terms of women participation? Not really. I mean, I've read reports or social media posts by women saying that my child is suffering from heat. We have no respite. We're living in hell. Again, as I said, my strong sense is that uh, everybody's in this together. Women, men, young, old, employed, unemployed, everybody's in it because it's affecting everybody across the board. What are some of the similarities and differences between the current protests and the ones that we witnessed in 2017 and 2019 in Iran? A lot of similarities because they're in response to crises. So, for example, the most recent flare-up of protests over water happened in 2019. Huge flash floods that affected the province and the government has built many major multi-purpose dams, the region's rivers, and one of the main justifications for these catastrophic development projects, these dams, was to prevent flooding. Yet the entire province was highly affected by these floods that affected cities, rural regions, smaller towns, and so on and so forth. Lack of electricity, horrible labor conditions, chronic unemployment, and a very strong perception that a lot of this has to do with decisions made by the political class or professional experts working for the government or the bureaucracies, and it would have been preventable. So, for example, it's very difficult for people to understand why there's water shortage where you have most of the country's surface water flowing in these major rivers. And one of the reasons is these mega development projects that divert river water from their source in the mountains of Zagros to the central provinces. 
where those provinces have a lot more sway, political sway and influence within the government decision-making apparatus. So there's a perception that our water is being stolen, that the dams that have been built to support these major development projects were not meant to actually benefit the population, but to actually plunder their resources or enrich people who are kind of involved with these white elephant projects like sugarcane agribusinesses and major agribusinesses, which employ very few people and their products are meant to be consumed elsewhere and really have very little positive impact on the province, if anything. And on the other hand, they consume a lot of water, they're very inefficient, and they have proven to be disastrous, you know, as far as environmental impact goes. So, you know, there's a widespread sense, and it's quite accurate, that a lot of this crisis has to do with how the province has been treated by the central government and by this regime. And there's a sense that corruption and mismanagement and incompetence has been at the source of it. To this, I should add that there's a cultural aspect to this. Khuzestan was the epicenter of the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s, which lasted eight years and it was very devastating, especially for the Western parts of the country where a lot of people were made refugees, the entire infrastructure was destroyed and so on and so forth. This war, which began with the Iraqi invasion in 1980, could and should have stopped in 1982 when Iran liberated the major cities that Iraq had conquered and pushed the Iraqi army back and Iraq sued for peace. At the time, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the leader in Iran, refused peace and decided to continue the war, in part to consolidate the Islamic regime. If I'm not mistaken, Iraq was willing even to pay some reparations for the, I mean, if I'm yeah, not Iraq, mistaken. but also the, the consortium of Gulf monarchies, you of know, course, the, of course. What, which became GCC. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. sued and they said, look, we'll pay reparations. I remember the figures were quite significant back then, something like $190 billion. That's a figure that I remember, if memory serves, was floated around. But Iran's response was that we're not doing this for money. We're doing it until we overthrow corrupt regimes. And so... They turned this into a political game, not so much to defeat Iraq and you know, other, other regimes, but to really use war, as many states do, as a way of consolidating the ruling elite and the ruling establishment. At a time right after the revolution where Iranian politics was very much in turmoil and there was no hegemony, you know, there was a lot of social discontent and people had very different ideas, different groups, different players had very different ideas about what kind of post-monarchy society Iran should build. So the war continued for another six years after 1982 to devastating effect. And the point is that for the Islamic Republic, that war is framed as a heroic battle for religion, for this holy order that they had established in Iran to resist against an unjust war and the forces of evil that had attacked Iran. And the people of Khuzestan and Western Iran paid the brunt of this, and they were idolized as heroes who basically stood and fought and defended the country, defended religion, you know, defended the whole social order, and they're the heroes of the revolution for this. And there's a very strong moral and cultural element to this that, well, 20, 30 years after the war, these provinces, Western Iran is still in ruin. Its minority populations are being crushed. 
it's a police state. Nothing has been built even to, to the level that it was before the war, let alone improve. And all of this is rhetoric, and they're just simply being used as tools. Their resources, their water, their oil, their land is being used as instrumentally as a resource to perhaps consolidate the government, but serve other provinces, other parts of the population. And they are just being treated as chattel and completely overlooked as citizens, even in the very basic things that they are demanding, like electricity, potable water, safe drinking water, and and safe working conditions. You know, these are the things that really inflame people and create a lot of resentment and discontent that just needs a, a spark to flare up. And Khuzestan is really the epicenter of this kind of discontent in Iran, at least for the past 20 years. Let's uh, delve into this question of water and water shortage, which appears to be the trigger for the current wave of protests in Khuzestan province, as you mentioned. Only 6% of Iran's total population live in the province. But five major rivers flowing through the, it, its territory, the province is reported to hold nearly 40% of total surface water in Iran. What are the manifestations of this water shortage or this water stress for the livelihood of its residents and the environment? And why is Khuzestan facing such a shortage of water, given all the resources that it has? It's not just Khuzestan, but entire country as well as the region that is in the midst of major drought and water shortage. So it's important to kind of realize that Although in Khuzestan, the water crisis and the water and power crisis are, have exploded, it really is affecting other parts of the country, but also region. I think it's really important, especially given if you listen and you follow the debates that are going on in Iran, there's a tendency to really focus things on the responsibility to government mismanagement and corruption. But I think this is only part of the story. It's important to kind of keep in mind a wider perspective and realize that what we're seeing in Khuzestan and in Iran is part of a much wider chronic issue. It has to do with global warming and climate change. So it's a global issue. It's a regional issue. The shortages in Iran are being replicated, both water shortages, but also power shortages. And remember, Power generation is heavily water dependent. Electricity is produced by, you know, boiling water and running turbines with fossil fuels and generating electricity. And this issue is affecting Iraq, it's affecting Syria, it's affecting Lebanon, it's affecting Iran. And it's quite widespread. Has to do with extreme heat that the region is experiencing at this point because of climate change. But then regionally, it has a lot to do with the actions of Iranian government, but also all governments in the region. So, for example, Turkey has started damming at least 20, 25 years ago, since 25 years ago, started damming the sources of its major rivers in the east of the country for various geopolitical reasons. Had to do with its policies toward the Kurdish population in the east of the country, but also the way that they were conceptualizing development projects. So mega projects like the Atatürk Dam or other dams that they're building mm-hmm. at the headwaters of these rivers have affected the flow of water, but also the ecologies of Iraq and Syria. Iran has been doing the same thing with all of its 
major rivers flowing into that river plains, in, into that water plain of Mesopotamia and across the west of the country. So these development projects, especially dams and using water for short-term major development projects, agrarian or industrial, has affected the entire ecology of the region. Then you have, since the 1990s, you have another geopolitical issue that has emerged. The impact of war, U.S. invasion of Iraq in 1990, you know, the first Gulf War, so-called Gulf War. Then Saddam Hussein's regime throughout the 1990s, beginning to, to drain the major marshlands of southern Iraq to push out the opposition, you know, the restive population, the, the Marsh Arabs, the so-called Marsh Arabs and all that. And then Iran has started doing the same thing with its marshlands and its, its wetlands across Khuzestan for development projects, but also for sort of similar geopolitical reasons, right? So you have this kind of confluence of horrifying development projects that have paid no attention despite many warnings of the environmental and ecological consequences of what they're doing. For authoritarian governments and for corporate capitalism, nothing is more attractive than huge projects that exemplify the power of the state or of capital and become a monument to their development projects and their kind of institutional power, often regardless of how productive they are or what the consequences are. So what we're seeing is a perfect storm of global, of regional, and of local crises that have used water with local states, with Iranian, Iraqi, Turkish states, treating their water resources instrumentally as simply raw material for either a market economy or the power of different development projects to glorify themselves or to kind of implement their geopolitical strategies against restive populations and so on and so forth without paying attention to the long-term consequences of these development projects on, you know, and the fact that the ecology at some point, when it starts to break down, will come back and bite you. So in the regions like Khuzestan in Iran, where, as you mentioned, there's a lot of surface water, major dam projects have been really, or water transfer projects have been really the, the culprit for creating the current crisis that we're seeing. On the other hand, in the Iranian plateau, where there's not a lot of surface water, but there's a lot of aquifers that have historically been used in a very measured way through systems that only take the surplus for agriculture and urban life, especially since the 1980s, you see local farmers, local population, with the consent of government, often just kind of digging into aquifers or using stream water or surface water without any limitation or regulation just to produce more agrarian products or for urban projects, urbanization projects, or industrial projects. With the consequence that in the plateau as well, you know, in the Iranian plateau, we're seeing major crises where rivers are running dry now, major rivers like Zion Derud in central Iran. You're seeing major lakes go dry. For example, in the province of Urumiye, Lake Urumiye, which is a major lake, is basically had gone dry. And you're seeing the same kind of water crisis, but it's not surface water. It's not river waters that are being depleted, but it's aquifers and underground water that is being depleted because the attitude has been that water is just a resource to, for the taking. 
it's not part of a complex ecosystem that has to be lived with, but it's just a resource that needs to be extracted and exploited and effectively plundered. And in this, obviously, the state, the government has been hugely responsible or irresponsible, but so have local populations, so have farmers, uh, because there's been no regulation and it's been a free for all without thinking about the long-term consequences. And we're seeing those consequences now in this widespread water, climate, and power shortages that are turning into political crises. Kaveh, if I'm not mistaken, the share of hydroelectric energy you know, of total electricity generated in Iran is, is only a couple of percent. I don't know if the drop in precipitation would have such a major impact on it. There are other countries in the region which use more hydroelectric source of energy. Let's talk about Khuzestan and this issue of development. The province of Khuzestan was reported to be the second or third most quote-unquote developed region in Iran before the 1979 revolution. And I say quote-unquote because there's a whole array of questions around this issue of development. Khuzestan holds about 80% of Iran's petroleum reserves 60% of its gas reserves, and we talked about its holding of nearly 40% of surface water in Iran. And the province actually generates 75% of the country's total electric power in Iran. Given all that, one expects Khuzestan to be one of the most affluent regions across the country. But the province has been dismally impoverished and left with polluted air, water, and soil. What explains the state's policies and decisions vis-a-vis the province in terms of development? The problem with aggregate figures like this is that it doesn't pay attention to details. So, for example, you know, you mentioned hydroelectric production. I mean, hydroelectric production is gets consumed locally. It doesn't necessarily have to go into the national grid unless it does, right? So right. there are regions that really highly depend on hydro, and this is the case everywhere. Whereas, for example, in places where you don't have hydropower, you have other kinds of energy production, still requiring water, but not through dams, but through power generators and so on and so forth. So, you know, in the west of the country, hydro has been significant in terms of what it contributes, first of all. Secondly, even when in aggregate terms, Khuzestan was one of the epicenters of development. I mean, in prior to the revolution, it had the largest industrial center, you know, in the, the cities of Ahvaz and Abadan with the refinery and steel works and, and so on and so forth, or pipeline production and, you know, major factories and, and so on and so forth. Khuzestan had the largest port in the country. The river port of Horamshar was a major entrepot for imports and exports and shipping and so on and so forth. So even then, when you look at the entire province, development was extremely uneven. You know, you had within 100 miles of the city of Ahvaz in Ram Hormuz, for example, you barely had a road that people could travel to, let alone the more remote mountainous regions and all that, which had very little access to basic amenities like electricity or cooking gas or transportation roads and so on and so forth. So aggregate terms, yeah, there was a lot of investment, but it was done in major cities and poles of development, so-called poles of development, Mm -hmm. where the government had invested a lot. And on the peripheries of these major poles and centers of investment, there was a lot lot of resentment by people sitting outside and looking in and saying, well, we're part of this very province. Why aren't we benefiting from this? 
And one of the reasons, and I've written extensively about this, one of the reasons why the general population jumped on the bandwagon of the revolution in 1978-79 was this kind of resentment, you know, that they were seeing this kind of glittering modernity of affluent urban life and tourist centers and industrial well-paying jobs and all that, but they were feeling that they're not benefiting from it. So there's a long history of that, and that goes back to the way that development is taking place. And I think if you go to places like, I don't know, you know, this is not unique to Iran. If you go to southern U.S., you go to Texas, you probably see the same kind of resentment where people feel, you know, in El Paso or, you know, on the border region versus Houston or Dallas, where you have major concentrations of investment and, and affluence and, and wealth. Whereas just on the peripheries of these regions, you have a lack of development, a lack of resources and extreme poverty. I mean, this is this is the image of market oriented modernity that we're seeing across the globe right now. This unevenness and inequality in both geographically and regionally and as well as economically. Now, to come back to your question of what explains this, I, I think I touched on it. That when the war ended in 1988, the Iran-Iraq war ended, a decision was made, I think, not to reinvest in the region to bring it back up at least to what it was before. So a lot of people returned, a lot of refugees, a lot of emigrants returned, hoping to resettle and restart their lives again. But if you don't have the basic infrastructure for doing those things, if the refinery that was employing tens of thousands of people remains half in ruin and it only begins to employ people who are kind of have are politically connected or have a way of getting a good paying job, whereas you can't. And if all the trade and all the sea trade and the border trade and all the commerce that you had before that sustained the bazaar and urban life, the university, schools, all of that is moribund and half built. There's no way that you can sustain life there. Add to that, uh, you know, as I said, that by late 1990s, even potable water was was not available. I mean, water had turned salty because basically, you know, this city sitting, you know, city of Abadan and Khoramsha, sitting in the middle of two major rivers, were completely surrounded by saline water. So the river water that they had been historically using for drinking had turned saline, partly because of development projects, because of upstream as well as downstream, what was happening. It had to do partly with uh, the building of dams upstream in Turkey, which reduced the flow of water downstream, allowed the seawater to move up uh, the river and make it saline, but also upriver. The state began to build these major dams and these major agrarian projects that began to consume the river water, even though there were 2 million people living downstream from these major projects and they couldn't care less. All they wanted to do was to begin these sugarcane production in these agribusinesses because it really kind of consolidated the power of the Minister of Agriculture and technocrats in completing these projects that were ecologically disastrous to begin with. And Regardless of how much, I mean, I myself was part of this process, environmentalists, local populations, even the the government's own environmental protection agency objected against it. But these decisions were made at a higher level by military personnel or more powerful political actors that said that, no, we need these development projects to prove that this is an advanced country. 
regardless of what will happen to actual people living downstream from these. And now we're kind of seeing the consequences of these development projects you know, and these decisions made earlier. Now, let me just kind of add one point here. I did this interview recently, and one of the questions that was posed to me was somewhat similar to yours. How can the Iranian government or the province of Khuzestan justify not providing adequate welfare for its own citizens, despite the fact that they have so much wealth locally? And I had to say, and I want to repeat this here, that look, I mean, this is not just about Iran. You live in California, right? I mean, you have a drought and this is the wealthiest, you know, the sixth wealthiest state in the world if it was an independent country. And people living in California or Oregon or, you know, Washington State or British Columbia should begin asking the same questions and making the same connections about the long-term consequences of the kinds of economic development that they have pursued, that these are the consequences of that now we're we're all paying for, and as well as the environment is paying for it. When you look at the local population, you can probably testify to that since you lived and did your research there. There's a resentment towards the center, the metropole, be Tehran, and the decision makers there, if you like. There is this center-periphery relationship that you just pointed out. Since there are different ethnic groups in Khuzestan, Within that dynamics, to what extent is the current disaffection in Khuzestan related to ethnic fault lines? It is partly related, without a doubt. As I said, Khuzestan is a relatively large province, but its population is bifurcated. So in the west and south, especially in the rural areas, the majority of the population is ethnic Arabs. In the highlands and in the in the east, they're lower, but these are mostly agrarian populations, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you have cities of immigrants, which involve these other ethnic groups as well, but also a lot of immigrants from elsewhere. So it's a complex province in terms of its demography. Now, since the war, uh, Iran-Iraq war, the ethnic Arab population has been treated mainly unfairly by the central government as a fifth column that their loyalties don't necessarily lie with the central government. There's a lot of prejudice, and they live in a lot of the population, especially in rural areas, live as second-class citizens. They are deprived of their voice in terms of what is happening, but they're also kind of treated with quite a bit of suspicion. Suspicion by whom? By the central government. This is a border region that became a hard border between Iran and Iraq after 1926. Prior to that, you had ethnic groups that a border region was in Iraq, in you know, Mesopotamia, in, in Iran, was an area of travel, uh, of commerce, of migration, constant migration. The borders were porous. And then they became solid with the rise of modern nation states. And all nation states, all countries and governments in the region started dealing with citizens that had divided routes uh, across these modern borders with a lot of suspicion. So there were at least 60 to 100,000 Iraqis of Iranian origin. Part of my own family was included who lived in Iraq, uh, not only in the holy cities of Iraq, but also in the south, in Basra and and elsewhere. Yes, yes. And, you know, under Saddam Hussein, they were expelled in multiple waves. I remember my uncles uh, suddenly showing up in late 1960s or early 1970s. One night a truck brought you know, a dozen people just 
you know, emptied them at the front of our door and they become refugees because overnight the government had expelled them because they said these are fifth columnists. I remember those those episodes. Actually, I was living in Khuzestan at the time, so it was mm-hmm. quite a story. So, yes. Yeah, and you know, and this happened again after the Iran-Iraq war. So Iran is as guilty as Iraq or Saudi Arabia, the way it treats its own Shia population. or Bahrain, the same thing. Minorities are treated with suspicion. So the way that Iran deals with this is that ethnic Arab in Iran are, their loyalties really lie with their brethren across the border, not with the nation state itself, especially if they're not, they haven't proven their loyalty to the Islamic government. And this goes back a long time, at least to 20th century. You know, it's not, but after the Iran, Iranian revolution it, and the Iran-Iraq war, it took on a more ominous aspect. Let me give you an example. When I was doing my field work in Iran in maybe 1990, it was, I was, I lived in Khuzestan for a couple of years. I was doing field work, my ethnography. You uh, did work on uh, Ram Hormoz, right? I did yeah, work on several rivers. Yes. You know, my center was in center of the province, Ram Hormoz, but I traveled across the board and I was also working on this project on the river Karun for this a major agribusiness that has become very controversial, a sugarcane, a major 80,000 hectares or, you know, mm-hmm. 170,000 acres, major agribusiness on the river Karun, which is tremendously responsible for creating a lot of the ecological crisis that we're seeing in the province, right? So part of my job as a planner working on post-war development was to go and I spent weeks traveling along the river, interviewing and surveying and talking to people who were mostly... pastoralist or nomadic Arabs or farmers, Arab farmers, ethnically Arab farmers. And as a technocrat myself, as a planner who was planning for post-war reconstruction, in my eye, and I was very critical of the regime at the time, I was secular, I was a graduate student at a U.S. university with a degree in urban planning and regional planning, and I was doing my PhD and all that. So nevertheless, I'm just kind of owning up to this, that my perspective was that, well, this is really barren land. There's nothing here. Nobody's living here. And why not a major node of development, a major agribusiness that will bring employment and produce a strategic crop like sugarcane? And this is a positive thing. And what I failed to understand was that like the tens of thousands of people who lived off of that land by the river did not live in a way that I would notice them. To me, they were invisible because they would use the land seasonally because they would use it as pasture or do seasonal cultivation of dry farming and all that. They had gardens and orchards by the river, but not necessarily in the hinterland five miles from the river. So what to me seemed to be empty land was actually very much like Native Americans when the English settlers came, you know, in New England and they looked around and said, oh, this is all wasteland. Nobody's using it. You know, these natives, they don't know how to use it. We can turn it into agriculture and industry and bloom the desert or bloom New England or whatever. This has been the perspective of the modern era of completely being blind to the kinds of livelihood and land use and social fabrics that actually make use of land and can be helped to develop in a grassroots way, sustainable ways of agriculture and livelihood that can also produce a lot of surplus if they're helped, but replacing them and pushing them out by kind of imposing a major development projects that is only to benefit the state or the abstract concept of 
the country, the nation, the national population needs sugar or wheat or whatever. So we are right in taking their land and using it as we see fit to supply what the aggregate national whole, the middle class consumers in large cities, what they need, we can supply it at the expense of these local populations creates a lot of resentment. And this was very much the case in Iran. As I said, I, you know, I feel culprit in being part of that process, even for a short while, even though I was just a surveyor and just a minor planner and all that. But that's the perspective of people working on development projects. They do not see that. And this is not unique to Iran. What is odd is that the entire idea of the Islamic Republic, for what it's worth, was to kind of actually pay attention to the local, to the small man, to the downtrodden, to the poor. And instead, by the late 1980s, the same logic of centralized, authoritarian, top-down, market-oriented, developmentalist, technocratic approach took over. And in the case of Khuzestan, add to this the suspicion toward ethnic minorities. And there's a sense that, well, Arab population of Khuzestan are traitors, that given a chance, they'll just kind of push for separatism and, and independence, and therefore they have to be crushed at all costs, or even kind of ethnically cleansed out of the region by implementing these major projects, taking their land and pushing them off. This has been a scourge in the border regions and especially in Khuzestan, but also elsewhere in Iran. So part of the problem, as you correctly mentioned, is political. It's the perspective of the, of the suspicious and authorit authoritarian central nation state and the way that it completely treats in an unfair way its ethnic minorities instead of including them, instead of creating a democratic developmental process, it goes just the other way and in a top-down authoritarian way, it implements these projects and these development projects become both socially but also environmentally disastrous in the long term, as we're seeing. Oh. 